Father, again, we come to your word and we thank you for the great lessons that are here, and especially as we come to chapter number 11, this, this chapter on faith. And there's just so much here that we can glean about faith. I, 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 we all talk about our faith, but do we really know what faith is? Is our faith really real? I mean, is our faith strong? Is our faith weak? Lord, uh, how do we make it strong if it is weak? You're going to teach us some of these things through this text today, Lord, and, and you're going to give us the, you know, the, most, the greatest definition of faith there is uh, anywhere to be found right here uh, in the book of Hebrews. So, Lord, if anyone has any questions about what faith is, how they apply their faith, how important faith is, I just ask that we begin to see that as we, as we study the book of Hebrews today because, Lord, we know that your word says it's impossible to please you without faith. We have to have faith. So, so teach us about faith and, and all that goes with it. I ask you to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit today. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles, again, turn to the book of Hebrews, and we are coming to that great chapter of faith, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter number 11, Hebrews chapter number 11. And not only do we get a great, uh, I mean, I think the most profound definition of faith you can possibly get, we get several axioms of faith, but also we're taken into the, uh, to the hall of faith and we're given a peek of at, at these great characters of the Old Testament, these women and men who were, who were great because of their faith. And, and we'll learn some things about them that we don't see elsewhere in the text. So, so we're really heading into a really exciting chapter uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter number 11. Now, the author actually set this chapter up for us back in chapter number 10. And really, you could actually take those last verses in chapter number 10 and, and tie them uh, you could skip the, the chapter break because they really belong to the first part of chapter number 11. Remember what he said in verse number 37 of chapter number 10. He said, for a yet in a little while, for yet a little while, and he, Jesus Christ, who is coming, will come and he will not tarry. In other words, Christ is coming soon. And the things that we believe that we can't see now, one, he's coming soon and when he comes, we're going to, see those things. The things we hope for, they're going to be fulfilled. And when we see him, we're going to be like him. But look what he says in verse number 38. He says, but now, and I add the but there, the conjunction there, but now how did the just live? The just shall live by faith. Until he comes, we're to live by faith. Who are the just? Who are the just? The, the perfect ones, the saints, you're the just. How, how did you become just? You were made just by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's been teaching us in these first 10 chapters, that Christ has made us just. He's made us righteous. It's just as if we didn't do it. Our sins and lawless deeds, he remembers no more. And so how do we live? How did we get justified? First of all, what did you do to get justified? You believed. So it's by faith you were made just. So how do you live the just life then? By your own efforts? No, you live by faith. We don't live by sight now. We live by faith. We were saved by faith and now we live by faith. And look at what he says in the last part of that verse. But if anyone draws back, 
my soul will have no pleasure in him. In other words, if you quit living by faith, then God will have no pleasure in you. If you draw back to your old life of sin, if you draw back to your old life of religion where you live by sight, I mean, if you look at the Old Testament religion and you look at a lot of the religions of the world, they're made in such a way that you worship by sight. Everything is done by sight. Well, we don't live by sight. We live by faith. And if we draw back and we try to earn our salvation or we try to earn our relationship with God, then God will have no pleasure in us, zero pleasure in us. Now, that would tell me if he has no pleasure in me, then probably I'm not saved. Because if I was saved by faith, then I'm going to live by faith. I mean, that's a lesson that, that uh, we learn real quickly if we're truly born-again believers. It's by faith we believe in God. It's by faith we're saved. It's by faith we're sanctified. And it's by faith we're glorified. It's by faith we, we're drawn into the very presence of God. And so our faith is everything. We rest in Christ for everything by faith. And so that means all of our religion is based upon our faith. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, God the Father has made all things depend upon faith. He's made all, did you catch that? He's made all things depend upon faith. So that whoever has faith has everything. Whoever, whoever does not have faith has nothing. Without faith, you have nothing. Without faith, we're told in verse number six, it is impossible to please God. And so faith is pretty critical. I mean, pretty critical to our salvation, pretty critical to our Christian walk. It's pretty critical to who we are. So we ought to understand what faith is. What is faith? I mean, what is faith? I ought to ask somebody in here to give me their definition of faith. What is faith? Trust. That's close. That's, that's, that's what I think most of us would say. Uh, the dictionary definition of faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Did you get that? Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Do you know what that dictionary has unwittingly done? You know what it's done? It's pointed us to Jesus Christ for all faith. Because Jesus Christ is the only one you can have complete trust in. I mean, some of you might trust the government, but I don't completely trust our government. I don't completely trust our president. I think he might lie on occasion. I think all presidents might lie on occasion. All politicians might lie on occasion. You can't completely trust your friends because at some point your friends are going to fail you. You can't completely trust them. I mean, you can't, it's hard to put complete trust in anything. You can't put, you certainly can't complete, put, put complete trust in your pastor. <clears throat> amen, y'all usually say amen on something like that. But you know, there's people that think somehow that the pastor can solve all your issues. I can't solve anything. You know, all I can do for you is point you to the one who can solve your problems. You can't trust an airplane. Completely trust an airplane. How many of you fly? You know, my wife flies a lot. 
Well, you get an airplane, you can trust that airplane to get you from point A to point B, but you can't completely trust it because sometimes airplanes go down. That's the scary thing about flying. I'm, I'm not afraid of flying because I'm going to go up as the airplane's going down. But, but uh, you can't completely trust airplanes. You can't completely trust your car to get you from one point to the other. Cars break down. I was talking to a guy the other day. He bought a brand-new motorcycle, and he was on the way. It was an Indian, by the way. He was on, he was on, his, he was on the way home. I'm lying. It was a Harley. <laughs> he was on the way home, and he said he had stopped by the store on the way home, and he stopped by the store, and when he went out to crank his bike, it wouldn't crank. I mean, the ignition was locked up. He couldn't get it unlocked. So he called the Harley-Davidson shop, and he said, uh, my, I've got this brand-new bike, and my ignition's locked up. And they said, well, you can bring it into the store, and we'll fix it. He said, I can't bring it into the store. The forks are locked. I can't move the bike. They said, well, that's not covered under warranty. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a brand-new brand bike. Man, I got Indian. I got to say it's an Indian. I can't say it's a Harley. But it was a Harley, yeah. I mean... There are very few things that we can trust, less alone completely trust. But let me tell you who you can put your complete trust in. You can put your complete trust in Jesus Christ. He will never fail you. He will live up to every one of his promises. Uh, he will, the work he began in you, he will complete that work. And, and you will be the person that he wants you to be. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that? Because biblical faith is not blind faith. Biblical faith is real faith. It's not wishful thinking. Look at the definition that we get in verse number one. Look at that definition. And, here, and I, again, you talk about a profound definition. You've got it right here in verse number one of chapter 11. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When we think of substance, what do we think of? We think of material things. Now, that's quite an astounding definition there, that my faith has substance. And so most of the modern translators translate that differently. They would translate it something like, now faith is a substantiation or realization of the promises or the things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But I disagree with changing that because if you look at the Greek word, it really means substance. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things seen. I mean, how in the world... Well, let me drop back. Let's look at the first part of it. Let's look at the middle part of this before we look at the first part of it. He says, now, faith is the substances of the things hoped for. First of all, let's define what he means by the things hoped for. What does he mean by the things hoped for? He means the promises that are given to us in this word of God. That's what you hope for. There's substance in those things. There's substance somewhere that makes those things real to you, makes those promises real to you. If you look in the word and you try to count the promises, you can't do it. I mean, someone I read one book said there were 3,500 promises. Uh, Herbert Locker has written a book called All the Promises of God in which he lists, lists 
the promises as he sees the promises. And he lists over 8,000 promises of God given to us in, in, in the Bible. Now, that doesn't include the individual promises that God makes to his children. That's just the ones in the Bible. You know, the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, when he was uh, probably at the lowest point of his ministry, he told his wife, he said, we're down to 25 cents. In China, all alone, we're down to 25 cents, and we're down to 25 cents and all the promises of God. He said, we're in really good shape. If you have all the promises of God, you're in really good shape. As a believer, I have a lot of things to hope for. I mean, all sorts of things to hope for. And I don't, I'm not going to get into all the promises of God here this morning. We would be here all day and all day tomorrow if we started looking at all these promises. But just look at the ones that he's given us in the book of Hebrews. He's told us in the book of Hebrews that, that we're going to be perfected forever in Jesus Christ. He promises us that we're going to be perfected. You know what else he promises us? that we've already been perfected in Jesus Christ. He promises us that, that we can boldly draw near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. He promises us an, an open door into the very holiest of holies. He promises, that Jesus, promises us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He's always praying for us. He promises us, wait till you get to the next chapter. You know what he tells us in the next chapter? He promises, promises us that we have access to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jew, Jerusalem, to the company of an innumerable angels right now. That's where you can go every time you pray. So they're great promises. And where, where do we get those promises? Those promises are wrapped up in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our hope is not wishful thinking. Our hope is real. And let me tell you why our hope is real. Because our faith has substance. Our faith has substance. There's evidence for our faith, and our faith has substance. Well, somebody will say, well, you know what? I can't see my faith. How can you say my faith has substance? Well, you can't see gravity. But I can tell you this right now, if you go get up on a 10-story building, it's going to bring you, and you jump off, it's going to bring you crashing to the ground, and you're going to die. And you'll believe in gravity. Well, you won't get to believe in it long. You'll believe in it as you're going down. But trust me, there is a thing called gravity. It's a, it's a, it's a physical thing that brings us down and ties us to this earth. So we believe in that, and we can't see it. Well, my faith is just, has just as much substance. What is the substance of my faith? I can't see my faith, but what is the substance of my faith? Let me tell you what the substance of my faith is. The substance of my faith is Christ in me, my hope of glory. Christ is the substance of my faith. Is he real? Can I see him inside of me? No, but let me tell you what. He lives inside of me. I can't tell you how I... How, I, how, how he lives inside of me, but metaphysically, he is there. He is real. There is substance to my faith. Where did I get that faith? 
Where did I get that faith? Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And where did I get that faith? That not of yourself. It's a gift of God. You were given that faith when you were given Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lives in you. You can't see him, but he lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You don't have two spirits living in you. You've got one spirit. You have the spirit of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost living in you. Metaphysically, he is there. It is a real thing. There's substance in your faith. Now, if you're truly a born-again believer, I've said it on many occasions, you have no doubt that Christ lives in you. You can't help but know that Christ lives in you if you're truly born again. Now, there's times when we quench the Spirit and we grieve the Spirit, and Christ seems as far away to us as heaven is. But those only times, for the most part, as a believer, if you're truly born again, you realize the very presence of Christ in you. And, and I'll say this, and I'm not saying this to put doubts in your mind, but I will put this doubt in your mind. If you don't know that Christ lives in you, and I'm not saying at this very moment, because you might have grieved the Spirit this morning, but if, if overall, over the time of your Christian life, you don't recognize the presence of Christ in you, you are probably not saved. Because there's substance in your faith. Christ lives in you. And we have evidence of our faith too. Man, if you had known me before I got saved, you wouldn't be sitting here listening to me right now. If I'd known you before you got saved, I wouldn't be sit, standing up here talking to you right now. Christ has changed us, hasn't he? Amen. We're told in Jeremiah 31, and we're told in the book of Hebrews that his law has been written on our hearts and our minds. He's changed us. We've been given the very spirit of God. So there's evidence for my faith. How he does that, I don't know. How he's going to finish it, I don't know. But by faith, because he lives in me, I know he's going to finish the good work that he began in me. Look, I have a car, and when I get in that car, I put a lot of faith in my brakes. I mean, the only thing that I can see on my brakes is the pedal. But the substance of, my, of the brakes is hidden from me. I don't see the linkage. I don't see the pads. They're behind the wheels. I don't see the, the, the brake fluid, but I put my faith in, that, in the substance of those brakes, that they're there, even though I don't see them. And I have evidence that there's brakes, that those brakes work. Because, you know how I have evidence? Because every time I hit the pedal, my car stops. And, and, and so we, we put faith in all sorts of things. But, hey, we can, we have, there is substance in our faith and there is evidence for our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I'm sure if I were to ask all of you in this room, do you have faith? How many of y'all have faith? I'll ask you that question. How many of you have great faith? Don't raise your hand because you'll, you'll look a little arrogant. But just think about it. Do you have great faith? Or do you have kind of medium faith? Or do you have really a little, little bit of faith? I mean, you kind of know by the way you live your life. But how much faith do you have? Well, if you've got a little faith, you need to fix it. 
you need to get that fixed. Because I'm going to tell you, it's going to affect every, every aspect of your life. This is a rough world we're living in. And you've got to live. How, how shall the just live? They're to live by faith. And the less faith you have, the harder this life is going to be on you. And the more faith you have, the easier this life is going to be on you. So first of all, you want to fix it if you've got just a little of faith. How, how, do, I, how do I fix it? Well, where does faith come from? Well, the initial faith we get, we just saw a while ago in Ephesians 2, 8, where, do we, where did we get that faith? A gift from God. But the Bible also tells us in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so if you're lacking in faith and you want to increase your faith, there's a metaphysical process that takes place when you read this word. And it will, it will change you. And it will, it, will, it will make your faith grow stronger. The second thing that we have to do if we want to build our faith is to exercise our faith. James says in chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word and not just hearers only. I mean, we're to live by faith. And, 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 and as we live by faith, God gives us evidence that our faith is real. He gives us evidence that these promises are true. He gives us evidence that this word really works in our life. And so our faith grows stronger and stronger and stronger. And we want strong faith. But let me give you the really good news. And you all have heard me say it. I heard Bridget mention it this morning in, in, in her prayer time. As I've said on many occasions, the size of your faith is not what matters the most. It's the object of your faith that matters the most. I wrote down a little axiom here, and I, I believe it's true. No faith can be stronger than the object of our faith. No faith can be stronger than the object of the faith. But I want to reverse that. No faith, in some respects, can be weaker than the object of your faith. You can, either way, it works. Who's the object of our faith? Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're a mountain climber and you're climbing the face of this rock, and your safety rope is a piece of thread, just one little strand of thread. But you have all the faith in the world in that strand of thread. You just know that if you slip and begin to fall, that thread's going to hold you. I got news for you. I don't care how much faith you have in that strand of thread, if you slip, that thread's going to break and you're coming down to the ground. But let's say on the other hand that you're a mountain climber and your safety rope is made of a thousand pound test nylon line. But you don't really trust that rope. I just don't think that rope's going to hold me. I don't really, I'm scared this is up too high and I'm going to fall and if I fall this rope's going to break and I just know I'm going down to the ground. I don't care how little your faith is in that nylon rope. If you slip, that rope's going to hold you right there on the side of that mountain. That wouldn't be a very pleasant thing, but it's going to hold you there. You're, and that's why a little faith is, is, is not a pleasant thing. Because, see, if we've got a lot of faith, we know God's going to hold us through whatever situation we're in. And so we're confident. Why would you not be confident in Jesus Christ? He is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He has all power, all the power in the universe. That's who's holding you up. That's who's going to see you to the end. Oh, woe is me. 
I don't trust my rope. Doesn't matter. You can cry and bawl, cry and be a baby the whole time you're walking this Christian life, kind of like a lot of us, but he's going to hold you. He's going to hold you to the very end because he is the substance of your faith and he is, there's plenty of evidence that he's there. All right, let's go to verse number two. He says, for by it, by what's the it there? By faith, the elders, the Old Testament saints, obtained a good witness, a good witness. You know, faith what made them who they were. Every single Old Testament saint, man or woman, they were made great by their faith. That's why I love studying the Old Testament characters, because they're women and men just like us. Lots of warts, lots of, lots of problems, all sorts of, of trouble they'd get themselves in, did all sorts of evil things, but their faith held, didn't it? I mean, you know, one of the, one of the characters of faith, great characters of faith that, that I don't know, I necessarily like to study them, but this guy Lot, you know what Lot did? When it was time to divide up, you know, to, to divide, make a choice between whether you were going to go maybe to the more barren spot or to the lush spot with a great city, that Lot took the spot with a great city and, and all the pleasures of this earth, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, I mean, he, the, the lust of the flesh, he had all of that in Sodom. And he lived there in Sodom. I mean, that, he, how much faith did he have? He didn't have much faith, did he? But you know what? His faith held because his faith was in Jehovah God. And when that, before that city was destroyed, he didn't get out of there. He never would have gotten out of there. He would have just been destroyed with it. But God took him out of there. God took him out of there because his faith was in Jehovah God. You study Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. And Abraham failed over and over again. The first time there was a famine, he didn't believe God. He, went, he didn't trust God to feed him. He went down to Egypt, got himself in all sorts of trouble. Could have, could have destroyed him and Sarah and, and the promise if it wasn't for the object of his faith. So you study all of those guys, David, all of them. And what made them great wasn't what was within themselves other than their faith. It was their faith that made them great. Now, we're going to stop here for a second, and we're going to finish on verse number three, because I believe this is the most basic tenet of your faith right here. Verse number three. Without this, don't tell me you've got faith. He puts it here at this point for a purpose. He defines faith. He talks about how faith made the fathers great, the Old Testament saints great. And then he tells us where faith begins. You know where it begins? It begins in Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's where your faith begins. What does he say? He says, by faith we understand that the word that the worlds were framed by the word of God 
so that the things which are not made, so the things, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. The things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Let me read that one more time. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Now the world's singing a different tune right now, isn't it? And, and even the religious world is singing a different tune. Pope Francis recently said, I'm quoting, some of you not, this is not my opinion of what he said, this is what he said. He says, evolution and the Big Bang are consistent with the notion of a creator and that believers should not view God as a magician or a, with a magic wand that could somehow just speak the creation into existence by his word. Now, I'm not picking on Roman Catholics and I'm not picking on the Pope because let me tell you what, most Protestants believe the same way he believes. I heard Pat Robinson the other day say, you know, it's time we put away this silly idea of a literal creation as described in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we're making ourselves look silly to the rest of the world. No, you know who's looked silly? He looks silly to me, but what he's saying is God is silly. God is silly. God doesn't have the power to do it as he describes he did it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Now, wait a minute. Let's, let's talk about this a minute. I said a while ago that to have faith, you have to have substance. And you have to have evidence. And a lot of people believe that the substance and evidence of science goes against Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, Genesis 1 and 2. Is that so? What's the substance that secular modern science is saying created the universe. What's the substance behind the creation? Well, let me tell you what it is. It's called chance. Chance. Evolution, chance, mother nature. That's what it's called. Let me ask you a question. What is chance? What is chance? What's it made of? What substance does it have? I'll tell you what it's made of. It's made of six letters. It's an English word. There's no power in the word chance. Zero power. Zero power to create this universe. Zero power to sustain this universe. What's the substance of our faith? We looked at it a while ago. What's the substance? It's a he, isn't it? Jesus Christ. Does he have the power to create this universe? By his word? Is that laughable? Do we need to give up that silly notion? Well, we better give up the whole Bible because that's what the Bible says because it says in Colossians 1.16, for by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created 
through him and for him, and he sustains all things. So everything else that's being created, he's creating. In John 1, chapter 1, the most basic chapter again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Can't be any clearer than that. See, the substance of my faith pertaining to creation has been made real to me by the substance of the Holy Spirit. I know that in my heart, that Jesus is the creator. Now, what about the evidence? Here's where the problem comes in, right? The evidence. There's no evidence that God created you. Look at your neighbor. <laughs> I know you're wondering if God would have created them, but no. You're praising God for their creation. I mean, look at, I mean, look at the evidence. Modern science tells us that evidence points to macroevolution as the creator, chance, or mother nature. No, it doesn't. I mean, if that was true, where are the fossils of these transitional forms that they say happened over time? Where are the transi transi transitional forms now? I mean, I'm not popping a, have a wart that's becoming an eye in the back of my head. I would love to be able to see behind me. That would be a very practical thing. You would think over billions of years I would have gotten a third eye in the back of my head so I could see behind me when somebody's coming up behind me or an ear on top of my head so I could hear things better on top of me. It's, it's absurd. There's no evidence for, for, uh, for evolution. Look at the basic cell. I, I recommend a book to you highly called Michael Bahe's book called Darwin's Black Box, in which he goes into the uh, details of what makes up a cell and how it's a manufacturing system in and of itself, and how if one piece of that cell, that manufacturing system, is missing, the cell will not function. It had to all be there together at once. But let's assume that a cell did just pop into existence over billions of years. You give it enough time, then, then maybe you can say it popped into existence. And then it developed into a tadpole over billions and billions of years. Now, what would have to happen for that tadpole to continue on in its existence if it died off? It, they don't, tadpoles don't live forever, regardless of what they might tell you in your textbooks. They don't live forever. Tadpoles die real quickly, become frogs, and then they die. But they didn't become frogs when they first came out of this primordial slime. But what would have had to happen? They would have had to have a mate. They would have had, and they would have had to have productive organs. And so would the mate have had to have female productive organs. And that would have had to happen exactly at the same time they came out of this slime, or otherwise they would have become extinct immediately. You see the absurdity of, absurdity of this stuff? On the other hand, you look at the evidence for creation, 
you look at the evidence for a young earth and it is everywhere. I mean, the evidence for intelligent design is everywhere. Just open your eyes. That's what I said. Well, go look at your neighbor. Look at your own body. I mean, look at your look at the ears and eyes. Look at the workings of the eyes. Your brain is greater than any supercomputer ever created by man. It, you, supercomputers don't just pop up over time. That, that's impossible. I mean, there's evidence for a young earth. You look at the magnetic field. The magnetic field is, is decreasing every year. And based upon the rate it's decreasing now, even at a much slower rate, if the earth was 100,000 years old, there would be no magnetic field, and we wouldn't exist. There would be no magnetic field. I mean, you, 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 look, at, uh, you look at the, the dust on the moon, for example, NASA scientists believe that the moon was millions and millions of years old, so they figured that when they landed their first lunar lander that it, they were going to have to have shoes on it because there was going to be like 50 foot of dust, and they found out there was less than an inch of dust when they landed on the, on the moon. I mean, you look at the deposits of minerals uh, in the ocean via the rivers. I mean, nickel and magnesium and lead, we can measure all of those things. And if it was billions and billions of years old, there would be much more lead and, and nickel. And in fact, it would fill the ocean if it was billions and billions of years old. And I mean, I could go on and on and on with this exercise, but, but most of it points to an earth around 10,000 years old or less. You'd open your eyes. And I know there are scientists that would stand up here and debate with me and and probably win the debate because they can say bigger words than I can say, and they, they studied chemistry more than I did when I was in school, and, and uh, they might win the debate, but they can't win it against creation scientists. And that's why, that's why you see it. You know what's amazing to me? That there's this effort to silence creation science. The same ways the Muslims want to silence the Christians, secular science wants to silence creation science. Why? What are they afraid of? I'll tell you what they're afraid of. They're afraid of the truth. And what they've done, they've, they've, they've tried to make a mockery of anybody who believes in a young earth and believes in a creation. They've tried to marginalize you and push you off as some kind of nutcase so nobody will listen to you. But they don't get the last laugh. God gets the last laugh because let me say, tell you what he says in Romans chapter 1. He says, for since the creation, God's attributes of creating the universe are clearly seen. But professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. W.A. Criswell puts it in a little bit funnier way in his poem he wrote. He says, once I was a tadpole beginning to begin, and then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey hanging from a tree. And now I'm a professor with a Ph.D. <laughs> you know, what's amazing is that real science, most of what we have that's verifiable science, that's real science, came to us by Bible-believing Christians. I just wrote down a couple of examples. The law of gravity and calculus came to 
I don't know why he gave us calculus, but the math teachers could tell us why. The law of gravity and calculus came to us, calculus came to us by Isaac Newton. The law of thermodynamics came to us by Lord Kelvin. Chemistry came to us by Robert Boyle. Hydrostatics came to us by Blaise Pascal. Etymology came to us by Henry Faber. Computer science came to us by Charles Babbage. Oceanography came to us by Matthew Morey. And I could go on and on and on with a list of, of scientists that have contributed to the scientific world based upon things they can verify, not upon theory about things that happened millions and billions of years ago. I always get a kick. I mean, we were in White Sands last year, and you go into this place, and it says that, that this was formed 220,475,000 years ago. Now, where do they come up with those dates? I mean, it, right out of the air. That's where they come up with those dates. And so... You know, I, I believe we can, all of these things that were, that all of these scientists that I just mentioned believed in a literal biblical account of creation and they based their science upon that. But I guess the question that we want to ask is does it really matter? Does it really matter what I believe? about the creation. Does it matter? Oh, yeah. You know, I was listening to a Pew poll last night about Americans' views on certain immoral issues and how they parallel America's views on creation how things 20 years ago that 80%, 60, I think it was 60% was the number they were using. Americans, Americans would have seen as deplorable. Now 60% say it's okay. And right along those lines, 60% of Americans of Christians believe, actually those were Protestant numbers, not just Americans, Protestants. 60% of Protestants 30 years ago believed in the literal Genesis account. Now less than 40% believe in the literal Genesis account. Does it matter what we believe about Christians? I believe it matters a lot because it, it, it affects what you believe about God. It affects what you believe about this Bible. You know, Darwinianism has been a curse to this earth. It really has. Darwin was a racist, first of all. He was a racist. He believed that black people were the direct descendants of apes and that there was this wide gap between black people and white people. And that was, a, that was used as a basis, and still is by a lot of people, for their racist beliefs. Now, if you don't believe that, you can go to page 178 of The Descent of Man, written by Darwin himself, and you can read the quotes and how he explains his Descent of Man and where, we, where, the, where different people stand on that. Dissension ladder. But you look at 
this survival of the fittest. And it's bred these concepts of an Aryan race, a superior race. It's bred abortion, survival of the fittest. If the baby isn't fit or isn't wanted, you get rid of it because it's just an animal created not by God, but through evolution. So does it really matter? Well, let me tell you what's even more serious. Because what you believe about creation is based upon the substance of your faith. If you can buy into the lies that are being propagated by the devil about creation, then I have to wonder about the substance of your faith. Because I, I, I'm just giving you my own testimony. On August the 22nd, 1989, I believed in evolution. I believed in billions of years of creation by chance. I believed in that. On August the 23rd, 1989, when I got saved, I didn't believe that anymore, and I, I couldn't explain it, and, and I had to do some study, a lot of studying after that because I, I'd been deceived through secular education. I'd been deceived into believing that stuff. But what happened? I didn't take a crash course uh, on biblical creation at a seminary. I didn't, I didn't read an apologetic book by CMI. That isn't what changed my mind. What changed my heart and my mind was my substance changed. See, that my substance of my faith was no longer my secular education. The substance of my faith was Jesus Christ. And guess who he is? He's the creator. And so maybe he knows more about creation than any of us do. You know, I believe that what you believe about creation is the most basic tenet of your faith. If you don't believe God could speak the world into existence, how do you believe God can speak into your soul his existence and change you from a sinner to a saint? How do you believe he can do that? I mean, if you don't believe in the creation, how do you believe that his blood can somehow cleanse you from all unrighteousness? If you don't believe in the creation, how do you believe in a second coming of Jesus Christ? How do you believe in a millennium? And I mean, if you believe Genesis 1 and 2 are fairy tales, what about the atonement? Is it a fairy tale? I mean, you mark it down. People who don't believe in a literal creation account start ignoring the blood. They don't believe, well, we can get the blood out of here. They, they deny the power of the blood. They don't believe in the sovereignty of God. They don't believe in the providence of God. They don't believe in the spiritual gifts. And what they're doing in all practical ways is they're castrating God and making him impotent. They claim to have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And you know what that is when you try to bring God down 
to a lower level. You know what that is? That is idolatry. That is idolatry. And I'm going to say this and I'll stand on this. If you don't believe the biblical account of the creation given to us right here in verse number three, you are an idolater. You are an idolater. And it's scary to me because I don't believe that understanding the biblical truth about creation saves anybody. But I wonder if you're saved if by faith you can't believe it. Because where's the substance? Who's the substance of your faith? What's the substance of your faith? If the substance of your faith is Jesus Christ, then you're going to believe it by faith. Look what he says in verse number three. We. Who's the we? The we is from verse number 19. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition to hell, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. By faith, we, we're the we, the, those who, are, who, who have been believed to the saving of the soul. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so the things which are not made, the things which are seen are, were not made of things which are visible. We believe that God spoke this world, world into existence by his very word. We believe it, and you can bank on it. Just like you can bank on every word in this Bible. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the faith that you've given us. Well, we realize that it's a gift, and we're not casting stones at those that don't believe, Lord, because we wouldn't believe if we didn't have that gift. Lord, but we see our society deteriorating before our very eyes because, Lord, this idea that you're not the creator, that evolution is the creator, this idea that you're not sovereign over the affairs of man, you're not sovereign over your creation, is causing chaos, Lord, in our world. And so, Lord, we just ask that that faith that you've given us, Lord, that you make real to this lost and dying world, that you use us, not to point fingers, Lord, but to bring people to Jesus Christ. And that nobody can see these truths until their substance is changed, until their substance is no longer their education or their own beliefs, Lord, but Jesus Christ. And when they know Jesus Christ, they know his word is true. They know he's the creator. So, Lord, we just ask for a mighty move of your spirit in this country, in our lives, and give us opportunities to share this gospel. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. His 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 name.